Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. Today I'm welcoming H.L. Hicks. H.L. teaches in the Philosophy and Religious Studies Department and the Creative Writing Program at a university in one of those square states, as he likes to say, uh, my neighbor to the north in Wyoming. His website is hlhicks.com. His recent books, in addition to The Gospel, which we'll be talking about a little bit more today, includes a poetry collection called Rain Inscription, an edition of selected poems by Estonian peasant poet Johan Liev, Snowdrifts, I Sing, translated with Yuri Talvet, and an essay collection, Demonstrategy. So let's welcome HL to the show. What else would you like our listeners to know about you? Oh, let's see. Um, I'm not sure how much there really is that's interesting. Um, You know, I lead the the boring life of a writer and professor. Um, Just means lots of lots of you know reading things and scribbling and uh, you know throwing things away. But um, what would be interesting? yeah, I one of the things that I really enjoy is about our current circumstances is actually my um, location for writing. Um, we have a a little uh, building that originally was a barn, um, and then was a garage, and now is a studio. And so that's where I get to write. So when I go out early in the morning and close the door, it's really, really quiet and really lovely and nice. Nice, nice. Uh, that has become of more value in our current times, especially especially those of us with young children or, frankly, anyone with someone else with us at our house, right? Right, right, exactly. Yeah, who knew that we, we would, you know, that it would reconfigure our relationship to space and in addition to our relationships to one another, well, I mean, as we're recording this, it's it's May, early May, and we're, you know, I think, like me, you're probably crossing your fingers that we're, you know, getting back to some quote-unquote normal and and looking as trying to figure out what the what the future will hold, right? In many ways. Right. Yeah. I just had um, about ten days ago or so had my second round of the. Uh, vaccine, and so um, uh, actually looking forward to a, a car trip soon. Um, I think I believe it'll be uh, the second time I've been outside the city limits <laughs> since you know March a year and a half ago. So wow, <laughs> wow. Uh, so looking forward to it. <laughs> I've not done much better, to be honest. I mean, I have a bigger city limits to, but yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, tell our listeners about uh, your journey of faith, what that's looked like for you, and what it looks like today. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I, th I think it's been in many ways a very, um, a, you know, typical, a typical life story, a typical journey. And, and I suspect especially sort of typical for, um, for your listeners. Uh, I was um, born into and brought up in a, um, a Protestant Christian household. Uh, so my father's side of the family, um, my paternal grandfather was a, a fundamentalist, non-denominational uh, preacher, addition uh, to his other work um, that he did. Um, and my mother's side of the family uh, was Southern Baptist. Um, and so I was brought up in, as we moved around when I was a kid, uh, I was brought up in uh, lots of Southern Baptist churches in small towns where my mother uh, was church organist always. <laughs> um, and <laughs> so I, you know, I'm sure that that part of things is, is sort of familiar to, to a lot of um, future Christian listeners. Um, and, and then, you know, this may be f a familiar thing too. My, my um, sense of things began to change in college. Um, I went after one year at a state institution and I finished up my undergraduate degree at a, a small Baptist college, then small Baptist college, now slightly bigger Baptist university. Um, and, but during that time period, um, my sort of understandings of things began to change. My sense of spirituality began to change and so on. Um, and began to take a direction that, you know, that was sort of recognizably distinct from family, uh, sense. Um, and, um, and I began to to really find I, I began to locate my spirituality in in other places besides the ones that I had sort of been raised to and and so um, there came a point at which I um, I you know first sort of changed churches and then eventually just pulled out of um, church and so I you know currently and, and for many years have not belonged to an organized religious community uh, and and so things became for me more um, you know I just described my spiritual life as more private um, than it was before and more having to do with um, you know things that might go by other names than church um, my my graduate degrees in philosophy and my writing practice is focused primarily on poetry and and so those things for me are are spiritual practices and enterprises and and so that's where my direction has gone yeah is there a i was gonna just ask if that was if writing and philosophy were you for you spiritual practices are, are there some other things that are meaningful to you uh, or you might recommend others in that vein. Um, yeah, I mean, of course I'd be 
wary or reticent about <laughs> recommending things to others. You know, others are much more, um, you know, in a much better position to decide their own spiritual practices than I am for them. But, but, you know, of course, with that disclaimer in mind, yeah, I, I think for me, one of the things that has been important um, was uh, rightly or wrongly um, coming to see things as spiritual practices. And so, so something, something like, yeah, I'm just thinking about something like, um, uh, um, I took for a number of years, took um, classical guitar lessons. Uh, you know, to absolutely to no effect, <laughs> you you would never know that I had ever. <laughs> you know, I was always was always was terrible. Um, you know, at the beginning and at the end, um, but but it's a um, there's a practice that even though I myself never got where I could do that, it's a practice that is um, at least in potential the creation of beauty. It's a practice that is um, directing one's body and mind toward a toward this creative, um, attentive state where you're you're really listening for something to happen. You're listening for a harmony, uh, and and so so you know I hope that. I have hoped for myself and I would hope for others that that we would be able to come to experience things as spiritual practices to to see that, oh, OK, I, I am even if I'm bumbling here, I'm I'm listening for harmony um, and, and that a lot of people have. Um, you know that there have been people for whom that has been a real vehicle, a real spiritual vehicle. I mean, you know, thinking of someone, the obvious example would be someone like Bach, for whom this is the the recognition and creation of harmony in that specific sense of harmony was for him. It was a spiritual practice. It was a mode of communion with the divine, um, and so to come to recognize those has been something that I've tried to do um, and would hope for, for, you know, for all of us. Hmm. You know, I've been hearing that so much in conversations I've had on this podcast. And I, I think, I think, I think this, um, this conversation I just had with a, a, a Christian group called a music group called the many, I think it'll air before you. But that was really one of their themes was talking about, um, yeah, I just, I, it's been so much conversation what I've had with people about this kind of erasing, this erasure of the sacred secular line and just seeing so much as wow. spiritual. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it seems, um, it's something that I want for myself and that I, that I, you know, admire and, and respect when I see it in others. Um, and that, that makes a certain kind of sense to me. Um, you know, it's not like, 
it's not like in our religious narratives, God created a sacred place and a secular place <laughs> and assigned us to live in the secular place most of the time and occasionally drop into the sacred place. <laughs> the, the, our religious narratives say, say this, it's all sacred. And, uh, you know, that, that the, the birds of the air and the flowers of the field and the, uh, you know, our neighbor and that all of these things, they're all sacred. And, and so it's probably much more of a failure of our own <laughs> to recognize that than it is that there's actually some distinction between sacred, sacred and secular. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um, I had a thought come to mind, but you know, we're not even in, we're not even to the main interview. So we got some good conversation happening already. Some good conversation happening already for sure. Um, what was I, I don't even remember what I was going to, but I, I really, yeah. Like I said, there's been so much, I've been hearing so much of this, this just erasure of the sacred secular divide and seeing it all as, Oh, that's what I was going to say. I know I am working on MBA right now of all things. Oh, uh huh. It's at a Christian university. And one of the themes that's come up again and again in, in, in some of these Christian business classes is this, even, uh, in the, the university I'm going to is with lean conservative theologically, but even they're recognizing this need to end this kind of sacred secular divide in the way that Christians approach their business and, and they're living in the business world of, you know, I think the word is they, they call it a two pocket theory where, you know, on Sunday, you're a good Christian, you go to church and you do all the Jesus stuff, but then Monday, it's just, it's doggy dog and that's okay. But, or at least it was seen as okay. And now it's less so, and it's more understood as how can you live out your faith Monday through Friday, as much as you're living it out on the weekend. And I, I, I think right. that's so important. Yeah. 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 I agree. Yeah. The, you know, there's n nothing wrong with market transactions. Human beings have always exchanged goods and services. We, you know, we always will, as long as there are humans, we will always exchange goods and services. We, you know, we can't live, by ourselves, <laughs> um, doing that. And so, so there's nothing inherently wrong with, you know, what we call in scare quotes business. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. It's, that's a, you know, it's a good and positive thing, but it's very susceptible to corruption and it's very, it's very susceptible to replacing it instead of fulfilling the values that we hold on Sunday morning. Uh, and, and so it seems like to me that what you're expressing here with this unity of sacred and secular and not suspending things for six days a week. And, <laughs> um, you know, it seems like that if business can be practiced as a fulfillment of Christian values, um, it, you know, I don't see any reason why that shouldn't happen. And it, and it seems to me a mistake not to have that happen, to, to sort of have one set of values. I'm going to do this set of values six days a week. 
and then this set of values. I'll value money one way, six days a week. Um, and then, you know, I'll make enough so that it won't hurt for me to drop that 10% on Sunday. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, well, believe it or not, uh, Harvey's not a business professor here, but he is a philosophy <laughs> professor, and he's demonstrating why here. I like that, you know, your point about replacing versus fulfilling. I think that's so good. Well, let's talk about what we're here for. Uh, let's talk about your book. So when did, when was this published? Pretty recently, right? Yes, pretty recently. It was just published last year. Um, I think the official, if I remember right, the official pub date was, I think, December 4th or something. I can't remember, late last year. Mm -hmm. So it's called The Gospel, and I don't think there's a subtitle, right? According to, according to you, H.L. Hicks. Right. Tell our listeners kind of the why, why behind the project. Yeah, it's, um, of course, as you'd suspect from the, uh, you know, sort of personal history background of um, being brought up in Southern Baptist churches where the Bible is central to, uh, you know, it's kind of definitive of the practices and, and the identification um, of that uh, group. And so, so, you know, from childhood, um, the Bible broadly and the gospel in, in particular, um, the gospels um, have been very, very important to me. Um, and so the preoccupation is a long-standing preoccupation um, and, and, you know, of course, stayed with me even as my religious views changed in college and my understanding of Christianity changed in college. Um, and so I was trying in college to um, be more reflective and self-determinative about who I was adopting as models for my morality and spirituality and, and sort of life and so on. Um, but, but what that meant for me was, you know, I felt like I had to take more seriously than I had been um, my understanding of Jesus. Um, you know, what, what I feel like I came to realize was that I was a sort of passive, <laughs> um, a passive recipient of Jesus rather than a kind of active, active engagement embrace. Um, and, and that it might be, it might be harder and trickier, <laughs> um, than I had understood. Um, and then, then what finally hit me that led to the creating of this, um, um, project was that um, the, the canon, the biblical canon, um, is you know, one of the most securely fixed <laughs> cultural things you know, in, in all of history. <laughs> um, but, but what had sort of bothered me about it for a long time was that um, 
it, it's fixed by a very particular um, body of humans, a very particular institution. Um, and so the, the biblical canon is an institutional construction. And it seems to me that that um, I no longer had any sense that that this institution was flawless and um, that its decisions therefore um, stood for God's decisions. Um, and so so then as soon as the canon was open, to question for me, then then things like process became live questions, um, and what I recognized was that the institution was telling me that what I should read and how I should read it. That I should read these four accounts. I should read them in order. <laughs> I should read them separately. <laughs> uh, you know, I can put them together after the fact if I want, but but I should read them in a certain way. But but that's not how the authors of the canonical gospels themselves wrote. So so the the canonical gospels that I was being instructed by my church background to read in a certain way. That's not how the authors of those Gospels read what they had received. So they were working from documents and they actively engaged those documents, put them together. And so, so I just decided that that, that, was, that was my task that this, you know, that I needed to do this um, it, it, instead of instead of receiving passively what the canonical gospel writers had written, which was not what they did with what they received, <laughs> that I should try to do what they did. So that was for me the origin of the project. For our listeners, if you can't tell already, this conversation is going to be a bit deep. So hang with us here because I think it's going to be worthwhile and intriguing conversation that I'm looking forward to. Uh, but we're diving in here. So stick with us for the next few minutes for sure. I, I have my seatbelt on. Yeah, good, good. Tell, tell our listeners... You use this phrase in the introduction, uh, what the book is meant to be and what it's not meant to be. Yeah, yeah. It, um, it's it's certainly um, meant to it's meant to pose a question to our uh, ways of receiving the gospel. Um, but it's not meant to. Um, uh, pretend to be a definitive answer. 
Um, so it's it's meant much more as a question than as an answer. It's it's meant much more to open something up than to close something down. Um, and uh, um, and it's it's meant to um, worry our customs or habits of receiving the gospel, um, but not to become some kind of you know next fixed thing. It, it either it, it's not meant to become the next King James version that for, for the next few hundred years will you know will be the one thing people read. Nor is it meant to be, you know, the next living Bible that that you know sort of for a moment captures a particular mood or slang. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, even Eugene Peterson's The Message, perhaps. Oh right, uh huh. Right, yeah, and so it's not meant to be, um, you know, sort of either of those kinds of things, but it is meant to be something that um, that tries to listen for the gospel. Um, it, you know, one of the things that I try to articulate, um, and I, you know, I don't know how well it actually does get articulated, but I try to articulate in the introduction, um, is that the uh, all of the all of the gospels, both canonical and non-canonical gospels, um, are themselves the gospel according to. <laughs> so they're all listening. They're all listening for something that's bigger than themselves. Uh, so so there's this something that we call the gospel. <laughs> That that each gospel, <laughs> you know, maybe we could distinguish with one capitalize one and not capitalize the other, but but the the gospel according to Matthew is is listening for the gospel period, <laughs> the good news, <laughs> and it's an account of the good news. And maybe a particularly, you know, really special account, but it's still, it's a gospel. And so it's listening for the gospel. And I'm wanting this to be a gospel listening to, listening for the gospel also, you know, listening for the good news that, that one hopes, believes, is there a presence in um, or standing behind, um, you know, any particular gospel. You know, I'm thinking of, um, I'm thinking of, I'm trying to get his full name. I'm having somebody on here in a couple of weeks. Um, Gabriel Gordon, he's coming out with a book. I'm going to have to connect you to. So listeners uh, coming up here. And I think after this will be an interview with, Gabriel Gordon talking about a book he's writing. There's similar themes here, so I might need to connect you to. Huh? Yeah. Um, it's 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 yeah. I'll leave it. We'll leave that for the next interview. But uh, one thing I'm <laughs> curious about is talk about your hermeneutic. If 
if that, if that word makes sense, kind of that guided yeah. your interpretive choices. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, you know, one, in one way I, I would backpedal a little bit and say, um, that one principle was for me not to be too principled, <laughs> um, in, okay, in, the sense of, in the sense of trying to be open to surprise that a, a part of what I wanted to do was to upset my own customs and habits of reading. And so I wanted to be sort of intentionally open to surprise. So in that sense, of course, I wanted to be a little bit unprincipled and, and maybe a little bit, um, um, you know, in, inconsistent. Um, but, but with that qualification, um, then, then I would describe as my because there's kind of two aspects to it. One is that, of course, it's a new edition of the gospel. So I have included various sources. Uh, um, and so I'm not, I'm not only translating an existing document, I'm, I'm combining um, uh, portions of existing documents. So the, the editing hermeneutic principle, I, I would just describe as... Um, um, I was trying to make notes for myself, uh, and, and I've just described it as pneumatic, <laughs> meaning by that, uh, appealing to the, right, you, you know, immediately, yes, yeah, so just that, it, that it has the principle that inclusion in, of material was a kind of, it has some sort of breath or spirit to it, uh, something, something breathes through it. Um, and then the translation principle um, of taking this so this material and now retranslating it, the translation principle I would describe as um, pursuing the um, original valence of the given word or phrase or, or passage um, in preference to the the more familiar reference. Um, and so, so if I was going to make a mistake, I wanted to make a mistake on the side of the original language, the original document, rather than the side of what I grew up listening to in church. Yeah, you, you wrote about kind of, you used the word translation inertia, which I thought was interesting. Um, you, you might have to give an example of this. I'm trying to remember from your book. Um, but I think yeah. about how, you know, for so long, so much of the, so much of the, so much of the treatment around our LGBTQ, LGBTQ plus friends has been based on what many interpreters would say a misinterpretation of Greek and that that interpretation has kind of just stayed with it for so long. Right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, I think translation inertia to me is a um, it's a it's a natural enough <laughs> um, phenomenon. It's easy to see why it happens. So, so what I mean by the term is uh, um, just that. Um, when we're translating a document, there there are a couple of different things happening, and one is that 
that we want the original document, the, the words that are being translated, we, we want to fix them so, so they stay the same. So the, the, to, to use the Gospel of Matthew again, what we want is to find what did, what did Matthew write? <laughs> what Greek words did he use? <laughs> Got them. <laughs> so we're gonna, those stay the same. They're the same today as when he wrote them down. Uh, and that's what we want to hold on to with the original document. The words that we're using to translate, we're, we're an active living culture in an active, with an active living language. And, and the English language is changing all the time. Words change their meaning. And so a word that's used at one point in history to translate an ancient original might be f a fabulous translation at that point in history. But then as the English language changes, not because the Greeks changed, because the English has changed, what was a good English word to choose to translate the Greek now isn't anymore because the English language changed and the word's different than it was when it was first used. And I think this happens most strongly in sacred texts because we're very conscious. We want very strongly for the original to be clear and fixed. And, and we want very strongly for the translation to be apt, <laughs> to be appropriate. Um, but what that means is we, it means translation shows up really badly <laughs> um, in our sacred texts. Um, and so, so, so then it becomes uh, one of the things that, that happens, for example, is that um, word choices in English not only become, are not only used um, for translating original sacred texts, they also then are adopted into our other practices, hymns, for example. Um, and so they become, they become a part of our vocabulary, but that's a part of what changes them. And so then very a very strange dynamic happens. And so something like um, uh, the word angelos the word in Greek, there's an obvious translation for it, angel, just a transliteration of the Greek word. Um, but there's a problem. <laughs> and the problem is that the, the Greek word, as the canonical gospel writers were using it, the Greek word was not a specialized religious term. It, it was a term that that had many applications and its most basic so its most basic usage was not religious it could be it could be applied to a specifically religious messenger but that was a special application and the general meaning of the term which was a broadly used term in all kinds of contexts was just messenger and so, so an angelos 
might be sent from God, might be a messenger from God, but that's a particular um, instance there. Well, fine, but what's happened with the word angel in the English language is that it has now become its primary meaning is specifically religious, and it's only it's only by a kind of metaphorical extension that we can we can move it out of that artificially move it out of that context. But what that means is, when I hear the word angel now, I have several hundred years of European paintings in gorgeous Gothic cathedrals and so on that are they're giving me a visual impression of creature who is wearing a white, it's a male creature, human looking, wings, halo. And, and so, the, so for me, the problem that I wanted to try to get at in this edition of the gospel is that's not what Matthew saw in his head when he used the word angelos. And so, that the mental image that's called up by the English word angel when I read that now is not the mental image that Matthew had in his mind when he wrote it down in the Greek. And that's the bridge that I wanted to try to, to try to cross in some way, or at least to, at least to point to, to say, oh, wait a minute, we got to think about this problem. Yeah. Let me ask you one more question uh, before we take a break. Uh, sure. And I didn't put this in the notes, so forgive me. But I, I, I want to point it out here. You, <laughs> you don't use gender for, if I'm remembering correctly, Jesus and God. Talk about, talk about your, uh, talk about the choice and kind of your motivations behind it and how you think it's helpful. Yeah, um, yeah. That's that's one way in which. Um, it's of course, as you might expect, it's the, it's a thing I've gotten a fair amount of feedback on, <laughs> including lots and lots of negative yeah. <laughs> and um, only imagine. feedback. <laughs> um, um, but the, the thought behind it was, was it right or wrong? The thought behind it was that, um, this is different from the impulse behind the, the translation inertia and trying to do these, um, make different word choices in English in that sense was fidelity to the original. Uh, and so, so my sense is, my sense is that in relation to translation inertia, my sense is that we're getting it wrong in English. We've gone, we've lost track of the sense in the original Greek, but in this, in the gender, question the sense is different this is a this is a case of um um uh, the my attempt to recognize um universality of god and so so one of the um one of the difficulties of language and of imagery is it's easy to see in imagery um, so, so uh, you know, we look at the Sistine Chapel ceiling, beautiful painting, amazing painting, 
of God and Adam almost touching their fingers. Um, and, and one of the things that, that we say to ourselves and recognize is, okay, this, I get it, I see what this is doing and it's fabulous, but, but oh, by the way, God, you know, God is not a thickly muscled male human with a long flowing white beard. That's a, that's a representation that is, that's a, that's a limited and distorting representation of a being that, that's universal. And so, so my sense is that it's a limitation of the English language as we currently practice it, um, and, and of many languages, including Greek and Latin, a limitation that we um, we're good at specifying when things do have gender, <laughs> but we're not good at specifying, we're not good at um, um, leaving out gender in our descriptions. And so, so my sense is that as a universal entity or figure, God, God is not male. God, God is universal. God, God, males and females were created in the image of God. If anyone was created in the image of God, males and females were. <laughs> and, and, and that's not to accept binary. <laughs> all, all humans, all humans, Gender, oh, gendered, however, all humans were created. If anyone was created in the image of God, we all were. And so that was the basis for the decision to try to, what happens if I just stop calling God he? And if I just stop saying that God is the father, if I, if I just stop, <laughs> what what happens how do i how do i then come to see and understand god how do these narratives sound and so on so that was the question that i wanted to ask myself there well it all really fits back into your point about translation inertia and the angelos and all that um so it really all fits in there well there's a lot more questions i want to ask you but for the sake of time uh let's take a break uh but here this should be hopefully enough for folks to whet their appetite to check out the book, The Gospel. Uh, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with H.L. Hicks. And, uh, Harvey, for these closing questions, I tell folks you can take them as seriously or not as you'd like to. Uh, so if you're Pope for a day, what does that day look like? What do you want to do? That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm reminded of my favorite Pope joke, which was that the the Pope the Pope had always wanted to um, uh, ride in a New York City taxicab. You know, it's just Pope's never do that. He always wanted to do that. So so it happened. Um, so the Pope's driving along, but but lo and behold, police officer stops the uh, cab for speeding. The officer comes up to the car 
looks inside, says, hold on a minute, goes back to uh, squad car and says, you know, calls into headquarters and says, I got a problem here. Um, you know, I think I've stopped somebody really important. Do I give them a ticket or not? And the, so the headquarters says, well, who is it? And he says, I don't know, but he's got the Pope driving for him. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> but but the, uh, uh, taking it more seriously, the question, uh, you know, I was thinking about this this question and trying to really think about it seriously. And the, the sort of first thing that came to mind for me was I'd love to institute a pray to someone else's God day Mm. where, where, you know, you, the rule is you have to pray your neighbor's way to your neighbor's God. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, where, um, where you're really asking what, what or who <laughs> is, is this person in touch with this, you know, this, this person, whether, whether it's literally my neighbor or whether it's, you know, someone with an, of religion that's unfamiliar to me or that, that, that I have construed as opposed to my own but they're living their lives built around that. They're living their lives um, understanding themselves as being in communication with something greater than themselves. Um, and so what happens if I really, you know, if I, if I ask through practice, what, what are you in touch with? With whom are you in touch? How, how are you in touch? What, what are you feeling and experiencing? Um, that it seems to me that that would be um, a f- kind of exciting way for us to all see ourselves, to see one another differently, to, to see, uh, you know, I see myself a little bit differently. I might see some limitations to my own understandings, um, and I might see more about your understandings than I had let myself see before. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, talk about a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life. Yeah, the 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 first place that that I go with that uh, question, of course, is to poets, and so you know, poets like Gerard Manley Hopkins for me was such an important um, figure and. And so I'd love to, uh, call, you know, call back Gerard Manley Hopkins and and get to talk to him and and you know people like um, the people I think of as as uh, comprehensives the the people who had this kind of large this v- large vision of the world that that everything fit into you know people like Dante and and Thomas Aquinas and and so on and. And visionary mystics like you know Julian of Norwich and so on. Um, I think if I just had to choose one person today, <laughs> um, it would be Simone Weil, um, just because she had she had such a <clears throat> she had such a, a challenging vision of of Christianity in particular and of and of religion spiritual spiritual practice 
um, that that to me is uh, it's so strongly integrating um, thinking and life the way the way she's understanding things and the way she's living um, and really internalizing um, you know, really, to use the cliche, really practicing what she preached. Um, so I'd love, I'd love to meet Simone Weil. Awesome. Uh, what do you think history, history will remember from our current time and place? Yeah, there's... I'm sure, I'm sure it's a lot of the things that are sort of obvious to us now. I, uh, surely, surely the pandemic, surely people will in the future, people will do the same kinds of things we're trying to do now. Ask ourselves, how is this like the Spanish 1918? And, you know, how is this like the bubonic plague in Europe and so on? Um, and so, so I'm sure that some of these things, um, you know, people, people will wonder about our, our, you know, political, um, directions uh, will will be amazed by what we have done in ways that we are amazed about certain periods in the past. Um, but but this too, this question I was as I was trying to sort of think about this, um, I, I was reminded of a poem by the uh, fabulous um, uh, Polish poet Czesław Milosz, uh, who I don't know died maybe ten years ago. Um, Nobel Prize poet, f marvelous poet, um, but he has a, a poem called In Music that ends with the lines, warm touch of cheeks, interiors of houses, and particular human lives of which the chronicles make no mention. Um, so, so this question about what history will remember kind of got me thinking about, yeah, what, what will history not remember? You know, sort of, what are the particular lives that, yeah, the chronicles won't mention them, that people in, people in the future won't be talking about them, um, but maybe they're, um, you know, maybe they're important to me right now, or they're important to someone else, and, and you know, and, and, have, and have spiritual standing. Um, you know, maybe history may not be the best, um, evaluator of who has spiritual standing. standing. <laughs> um, so yeah. that was kind of what the question gets me thinking about. Yeah, good. What are your hopes for the future of Christianity? Yeah, it's it's funny. I was thinking about um, uh, um, and one of the um, terms that you know I think trans translation inertia applies to. Um, and the the Greek term is metanoia, and the the um, usual translation is repent. Um, and so, you know, I tried a different translation. But but what I was thinking was, yeah, my hopes for the future of Christianity is that that as as a large collective whatever it is, a thing, you know, corporation, institution, uh, as this large um, something entity, um, that it will do what, what I think we're all 
well advised to do regularly, which is to, you know, rethink, reconsider, um, and to sort of check ourselves and make sure this is actually, make sure we're actually doing the things that we purport to be doing and, and you know, and that we, that we know how to tell ourselves that we're doing, but find ways to sort of check in and, and ask, you know, oh, wait a minute, maybe, maybe I'm not doing this quite as well as I <laughs> intended to, you know, have been trying to, but maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not doing it. And so I would hope that Christianity would do a little sort of check-in <laughs> and, and reconsider metanoia. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Well, the book is The Gospel, and it's from Broadstone Publishers. Tell our listeners where they can find the book and then find out more about you. Yeah. Um, the, listeners can certainly find the book on any of the sort of standard um, uh, electronic uh, sources. Um, the publisher itself uh, has the book at a discount. Um, and so that's Broadstone Books. Um, and so you can just with the search engine do Broadstone Books um, and it would turn it up immediately. Um, and so you can order directly from the uh publisher or from you know amazon or bookshop.org or your favorite um electronic here or through your um independent bookstore you know special order it through your bookstore and support your independent bookstore <laughs> and then your website is what hlhicks.com that's right yeah and it's it's h-i-x rather than h-i-c-k-s Yes, yes. <laughs> well, thanks again for your time. I've appreciated this conversation, and uh, I wish you wish you well. May God's peace be with you as you go through whatever comes next here in our world. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you for having me, and thank you for this conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is produced by Torn Curtain Arts in partnership with Resonate Media. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit futurechristian.com. If you've enjoyed the show and you think it would be valuable for others to hear, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. That really helps more people find us. Thanks again, and go in peace.